Today's message is uh, called, You Get to Live in This One. It comes from a story a friend of mine told about uh, an investor. It's basically a parable about an investor at a contractor. This rich investor had this really great builder. And the guy built really well. Everything he ever gave to him. Every project. He never cut corners. And one day the rich investor said, you know what? I'm going to go on an extended trip to Europe. Kind of a semi-retirement trip. And we got this new project. He gave him the plans and said, I want you to work this one out. We have three months to do it. Make sure it's on time. So he left. And the builder thought to himself, ha, ah, finally, we're going to make some money on this one. Because the profit margins were always slim, building really great houses. So he double-spaced the studs. He used inferior materials. And it looked, when he was done with it, it looked really great on the outside, but inwardly it was shoddy, substandard. The investor came back. He got the contractor. They went out to the property. He said, man, it looks great. The builder said, what are we going to do with it? Let's put it on the market. Let's make some money right now. Let's make some scratch, some dough, some cabbage, some green." <laughs> he says, actually, for all your years of hard work and service, I decided to give you this one. Here you go. And he handed him the keys. He said, this is your house. You get to live in this one. And that is a parable of the Christian life. The point is this. Be careful how you build because the life you build is the one you get to live in for eternity. And Jesus put it this way in Matthew chapter 7. He said, you're a fool if you don't build your life on my teaching. You're a fool. He says, but you're a wise man if you do. Now, the fool went down to the, bought himself some beachfront property. Oh, beautiful piece of property right there on the shoreline. Built himself a beautiful, sprawling villa. And all of a sudden, the winter came and the rains came. And what happened? That house fell with a great crash. But he says the wise men went up, built his house, dug it down on the basalt rock. And so Jesus says, if you put into practice my teachings, you're the wise man. But if you don't, you're a fool. So today I'm going to give you some tools. We're going to do a little shop talk. Welcome to shop class. I'm going to give you some tools. I'm going to show you how to build a birdhouse. I'm going to show you how to construct your life with God's word. I'm going to give you some very practical, uh, uh, sensible, common sense principles to help you do that. I'm going to back up a little bit. Number one on your outline, I'm going to talk about the greatest story ever sold. The greatest story ever sold is the Bible. Did you guys know that the Bible is the best-selling book of all time? You probably have heard that, right? But did you also know that the Bible has been on the frontiers of publishing technology for 2,000 years? I mean, it started out in scroll form. Guys would write it in scroll, these big, long scrolls with these uh, quill pens and this uh, sort of mud type of ink that they used. And, and then they transitioned. They started to uh, transition these scriptural stories into every medium and every format possible. Early in the church's existence, Christians embedded biblical scenes. Scenes right out of the Gospels in their mosaic floor tiles. That sort of artistic and symbolic expression was state-of-the-art in the ancient world. By the second century, Christians got tired of carrying around a satchel full of New Testament scrolls rolled up. And so they invented this thing called the Codex. You know what a Codex is? It's an ancient book. It's a bunch of papyrus pages. They figured if they laid them flat on top of each other and sewed them or bound them at the end and then put a leather cover on it, they could get ten times the material in there. And they could just flip the pages instead of having to unroll it. Christians invented that. 
In fact, it became so overwhelmingly popular in the Greco-Roman world and the Byzantine Empire by the 6th century. The scroll had become completely obsolete. Everybody was using the book. That was a media innovation. Then came stained glass windows. You know, we'll never have stained glass windows in here because we're in a Kmart. (laughs) We just have stains. (laughs) But (laughs) I'll tell Kurt I said that. We love our spot, man, our little shabby hovel that we love. But, you know, in in the 7th century, they built these gothic, beautiful old church buildings, and they put these beautiful stained glass windows. Well, those weren't just ornate decorative pieces. They actually put Christian doctrine or biblical scenes in those those, uh, glass mosaics. They put them in those windows to teach the illiterate masses the stories from Scripture because people couldn't read the Bible. That's why they did that. But the big bang of the Bible industry came in the 15th century in 1465 AD with Gutenberg. Gutenberg wanted everybody to own a personal Bible. And back then, hardly anyone did. So he invented this weird machine called a printing press. And Gutenberg's printed the first Bible. He found that he could mass produce the Bible. He could produce 10 a day. Isn't that amazing? with this floating type printing machine. Now fast forward to the the media revolution of our time. The modern believer can store an entire biblical library on his smartphone. I can store on this superhumanly gigantic phone of mine, I can put on this phone every work, every commentary ever written on the Bible and it wouldn't even make a dent in the memory in this thing. We We have it at our fingertips. The church today has ubiquitous access, universal access to the Bible and study tools. And this is why the statistics on biblical literacy in America are so jarring. George Barna said that America is facing what what he calls a collapse in theological competence. The Pew Research Forum did a study where they found that Mormons and atheists knew the Bible better than evangelical Christians. That is a scandal. I don't want to be that church. That's why I'm here. So what I'm going to help you do today is I'm going to give you some tools. I don't think most people look at the Bible and go, I don't want to spend time with that boring book. I think a lot of people look at it and go, I don't really understand some of the archaisms. I don't really understand some of the arcane language in it. I don't really get it. So I'm going to give you some tools today that you can put in your tool belt to help you construct your life on Jesus' teaching so that you'll know what this book has to say. Okay, here we go. Buckle up. Number two, how to develop spirit confidence or competence. 2 Corinthians 3, 5 through 6. Paul said this. He said, when we came to you guys, we did not come with competence in the letter. Now, was Paul competent in the letter? Yeah, he was a rabbi. He was a student of Gamaliel. Dude, he knew the Bible. And so Paul said, but I didn't come to you with competence in the letter. I came to you with competence in the spirit. I came to you with spirit competence. What is he talking about? Well, Paul tells us what he's talking about. Let's look at uh, the pattern of revelation that we have in the New Testament. A lot of people, they talk about biblical revelation. They say, well, God revealed his word back in the first century. That is true. And every word of God today is tethered back to this book and tethered back to this first century revelation. It's absolutely true. 
but then they sort of try to confine or quarantine God's revelation to back then. What I want to show you today is that God wants to bring this revelation out of this book, the revelation of his son, and he wants you to be the revelation in life. That's what I want to show you today. So the pattern is this, God's word incarnate in Jesus, John chapter 1 and 1 and 14. Jesus is the incarnate word of God. It says this, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. So John says there's two categories, maker, made. Jesus goes in this one. Okay? In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind, verse 14, and this word, the same word that was God and was with God and made all things, that word became flesh. He became a man. That's called the incarnation. Jesus was incarnate, the word of God. Jesus is God's authentic voice. When God speaks, Jesus is God's voice. And that voice was found in appearance as a man speaking to humanity. So the first Leg of the revelation is God's word incarnate in a man, a sacred man. The next leg of it, or the next dimension of it, is God's word captured in a sacred text. The apostles were authorized to capture Jesus' words and then to riff on them. And that's what they did, and that is considered the word of God. Jesus authorized them in Matthew 16. He said, you guys are going to write the Bible. That's basically it. In 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 16, here's what Paul says. He says to Timothy, and how from infancy you have known the sacred scriptures. It's a sacred book. Which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture, he says, is God breathed. He says it's theonoustos. It's inspired of God. And it's useful. Underline that word. We skip around that word. It's useful for teaching, correction, rebuking, and trying to be righteous? No, training to be righteous. We're going to get to that in a second. So Paul restricts his idea of inspiration in this passage to God breathing onto the minds of men, bringing forth his word in their minds and in their writings, and then he says that word functions. It works. You can put it to use. It'll change you. But then after we have God's word incarnate in Jesus and God's word captured in a sacred book, we then have God's word contextualized in your life. What do we mean by this? 2 Corinthians 3. Back to that Corinthians passage in 2 through 3. He says this, you yourselves are our letter written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human heart. What does he call them? He uses beautiful analogy. He says, you guys are our our living epistle. You're our living letter. Why? Because the Corinthians were the most jacked up church in the ancient world, totally. Like, if you are messing up, read the book of 1 Corinthians, you'll be feeling better about yourself. Because they were messed up. They were spirit gifted. Now, they had all kinds of workings of supernatural workings of miracles and the power of God being poured out and prophecy and speaking in tongues and all this really cool stuff. 
And Paul says, you all think, in 1 Corinthians, he says, you all think you're a bunch of hot shots because you got, your, you got a bunch of spirit manifestations and gifts, but I got news for you. He says in chapter three, you're a bunch of spiritual nurslings. You're like a bunch of toddlers back in the toddler class clanging around, banging on toys, making a noise, and nobody loves each other. You guys are divided. There's no unity in the church. You guys are messed up. You need to go back and focus on character formation, the process of love. But now in 2 Corinthians, he flips it around. He says, oh, you guys got it right. He goes, you guys took my advice to heart. You lived out the word of God, and now it's as if you are a living letter from God. Wouldn't that be a great compliment if I just met you in the hall and I said, brother, you're a living epistle. You're a living letter. What a great compliment. Well, what is he talking about? He is talking about the word of God contextualized in life. God has always been about the business of contextualization. Now, what do we mean by that? We mean not that God is about compromise. He doesn't want to compromise with the ideologies of the world, It isn't that God wants to accommodate false ideologies or theologies. Contextualization means very simply this. We speak the language of God in the language of the receiving culture. That's why we do this on Sunday morning. That's what we're all about. We speak the language of God in the language of the receiving culture. Ask any missionary, what is he doing in the 2080 zone? He will tell you, yeah, I'm over in Indonesia. I'm speaking the language of God in the language of Indonesian culture. Whenever God speaks, the first person he looks for is a translator. He's looking for you. He's looking for a room full, an army of translators, people who can translate that sacred message to their culture, to their work, to their space. This is precisely why God used the symbolism of the temple in the Old Testament. Have you ever wondered why God embraced that sort of uh, messy, bloody enterprise of ancient temples? Did you know that the temple in Jerusalem, Solomon's temple, postdates the first temples we know about in pagan culture by between 700 to 1,000 years? Did you know that? The Jews didn't invent the temple. God didn't invent the temple. Pagans did. Why did God communicate to them in a temple that looks just like those pagan temples that's laid out exactly like them? Why did he do that? Because God speaks his language in the language of the receiving culture. God has always been about contextualizing his word in the lives of people. The Spirit wants to take God's authentic voice captured in the teachings and sayings of Jesus and embed them firmly in your context. You better listen to that again. The Spirit wants to take Jesus' authoritative teachings captured in the sacred book and he wants to embed them, suffuse your context with them. The living and eternal word of God wanted to be revealed after the first century in monasteries. He wanted to be, re- be revealed in their Gregorian chants. He wanted to, be, to inhabit their liturgies and their church structures. He wanted to be embedded in every single thing they did. And this same spirit, this same God, he wants to inhabit your modern world. He wants to be in your smartphone and in your e-reader. He wants to be on your radio and in your TV and on your blog. He wants to be in your church, and he wants to be at your next neighborhood barbecue. He wants to be in your cubicle, in your office. He can't wait to inhabit your conversations and your language and your culture. He desires 
to occupy every niche of this world, starting with your patch of it, with his word, his eternal truth, that he is the Savior. God's word, incarnate in a man, captured in a sacred text, contextualized in you, the living word of God, the word in life. He is the word of life, and we are the word in life. That's God's plan. So let me give you some helpful tips. Okay, time to pull up professor's chair here. Let me give you some helpful tips on how to do that. If you're taking notes, first thing you'll want to do is you want to, when you study the scriptures, you want to pay attention to the content. It's very important. You guys know who Joe Theismann is? Now he does like, uh, <clears throat> I think, erectile dysfunction uh, <laughs> commercials now. I don't know what he's doing now, but... Uh, but he used to be the most famous quarterback in the world, back when the Redskins were winning uh, championships. But he is actually the dumbest quarterback that the NFL ever produced. Um, hope he's not watching this. Sorry, Joe. But the guy's not real super bright. He was asked right after one of their Super Bowl victories by a very excited uh, uh, news reporter. He's like, Joe, what does it feel like to be a genius? And Theismann said, oh, I don't know, man. You know, like genius doesn't really apply to football. Genius is a word you use for a guy like Norman Einstein. <laughs> Case in point. I think he made his point. Ignorance is the source of error. Ignorance is the source of error. Error starts with not quoting it right. <laughs> So your first concern when you come to the scriptures is to ask the question, does it say what I'm saying it says? Because if it don't say what you're saying it says, you got it wrong. You need to do a double take. Go back to it. So make sure it says what you're saying it says. Nobody's perfect in this area, but we got to try to get it right, okay? Pay attention to the content. The next one is pay attention to the context. Well, all of you have been in my classes. Now you're in class. You know that this is a really big one for me. The second area that is critical for us to master is paying attention to the context. If I come home and say to Carrie, hey, Carrie, um, I was hit. What is her next question going to be? By what? Did you get hit by a brilliant idea? Did you get another one? <laughs> Did you get hit by, to, the temple, uh, to your temple with a football, a spiral football? I mean, did you get hit by a chunk of Skylab? Her natural question is going to be, give me some more inform information. I need to understand the rest of the story. And one of the things that people do is they get the content right, but then they forget the context. This is what we teach you in the Matthew journey. We help you look at the context of Scripture. What does that mean? The word context comes from a Latin word. Con meaning with, text meaning text. This means what's with the text. So look at the chapter. Look at the book. Look at all of it. Because if you take it out of context, you have misunderstood its meaning. So, for example, when the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 3, 9, that everyone who has the faith of Abraham will, will be blessed the way Abraham was blessed. I've heard some dumb stuff on that. I mean, if you wanted to just sort of take that out of its context and make it say whatever you want it to say, well, you could go back to Abraham. Go back to Genesis chapter 12. Uh, you could start there. Look at his life. How was Abraham blessed? 
well, he got a lot of goats, so maybe God wants you to be a goat farmer. <laughs> he had a concubine, so maybe God wants you to have a ministry of sex trafficking. You see how silly that is? You can't take something out of Paul's context, go back into the Old Testament, and then pour your meaning into it or import your intended meaning to it. You have to hear it. You have to hear their intended meaning. It's called authorial intent. You have to know what they were saying to their audience. So you go back to Galatians 3, read the whole chapter. What does he say? Everyone who has faith in Jesus participates in the promise made to Abraham, which is what? Righteousness. They are made right before God. That's Paul's context. That's his own context. So context matters. What's with this text that you're quoting is very important. Next, pay attention to your context. Well, you can't just pay attention to the context of Scripture. You have to pay attention to, to your context. What I mean by this. Our task at the end of the day is not just a historical one. It isn't just to rightly understand the meaning of the text. It's an empathetic one. It is to identify with the meaning of the text and then, as we said, contextualize it. Not too long ago, we bought this really cute little dog. How many of you guys are uh, dog people? Let me see your hands. Yeah. I am not. I, I, I don't like dogs. Anybody that knows me, you know my story. I grew up in a house where my dad had like 24 hunting dogs. Dad was bringing a dog home like every month. And it was my job to feed and water them all and take care of them. So I vowed as a seven-year-old kid, I stood there with my fists clenched, white knuckles saying, I will never have a dog when I grow up. And I, I have it. And until recently, I promised my little kids, they kept begging me, we want a dog. I thought, well, we'll just buy a little, house, a little tiny house. We did. We bought this uh, little black, he's so cute, little black, uh, he's warming me up. Okay? He's softening me, my cold uh, heart. But he's black. He's half Shih Tzu and half Yorkie. Man, oh, yeah, listen to that. He's just the cutest little dog. And he's become just sort of the, the fifth child in our family, man. And, but when I brought him home, took the kids home, Carrie and Tyler sitting right back there. I can tell you this is true. We got in the living room, put the dog on the floor, and I said, now listen up. Time to lay down the law. <laughs> I ain't taking care of that dog. I ain't going to feed that dog. I mean, I went down the list of all the stuff I wasn't going to do. And I ended, the, I ended that little speech, Carrie will tell you this is true, by saying, this is y'all's dog, this is not my dog. And then the next week, Carrie said, I got to take the kids to my grandma's house in Montana. You watch the dog for four days. <laughs> Man, so much for the law. <laughs> but she knew me well, so she knew that this is not going to work out unless I give him a list. So the list was on the refrigerator door. I was like, yeah, no problem. That's cool. I went up to uh, the kitchen, got the list out. I was like, what? There's like six things on this list. I can't do the, all these six things. <laughs> so I went down the list. The first one was feed the dog. I was like, ah, can't feed himself. Here's where the food is. Second thing on the list, take him out. Third thing on the list, give him a bath. I mean, there was all these things on this list that I didn't want to do. Now, you would agree with me that simply rightly understanding Carrie's authorial intent wasn't good enough. I mean, I understood what she meant by the list. I understood what she meant by what she wrote. But I mean, surely, I mean, if I had not had the intent to apply what I was reading, what I had 
properly understood, then she would have returned to a very messy home and a very dead dog. (laughs) So the lesson is this. Understand the author's original intent. Work at it. Look at the content. Look at the context. But at the end of the day, don't starve the dog, man. (laughs) Apply the word of God to your life, to your context, to your situations. Last one, develop muscle memory. Um, (laughs) One of the funniest uh, phases of my life was the learning the guitar phase. You guys ready for this? Seriously, I'm not going to play for you. But um, when I was first learning to play the guitar, I was in my early 20s, and I was taking lessons. I lived down the Tri-Cities. I was a youth pastor, and I realized I had no worship team, so I had to learn how to play guitar so I could play some worship songs. So this guy in my church said, I'll give you lessons. So I sat down at the guitar store with him, and he said, okay, here's how you make a G. And he showed me how. Here it is. Half hour later, I had all my fingers in the right spot. I mean, it took me forever to finger a G. And then he said, okay, now, let's hear it. Strum it. And it sounded like this. It was horrible. And he said, okay, let's just work on that. So about 10 minutes later, I could do that. Next week, he's like, all right, let's work on a G. Took me three minutes. I got my fingers where they're supposed to be. He said, okay, let's hear it. That's literally what it sounded. It even sounded worse than that. He said, okay, so after 10 minutes, I did that for 10 minutes. And then he said, okay. I said, what's next? He said, we're going to learn D. I said, there's another chord. (laughs) So for 30 minutes, he tried to show me D. Now, I tell you that story because in four years, I was the worship pastor at my church in Minnesota, and I was teaching guitar to all the kids in the youth group, and their moms were paying me to teach guitar lessons. And I was taking lessons from a classical guitarist who taught me music theory. But what I had developed was what's called muscle memory. What started out as this, after a thousand times later, became this. And a thousand hours later, it became. See what I mean? The point is, the brain is wired in such a way that as you repeat an activity, it starts to become second nature. The rhythm of that activity gets carved in your synapses. It gets carved into your brain and and you develop these motor skills and they attach to your mind and just become second nature and that's the way the Bible ought to be. If you got a problem with lust, let's get down to the nitty gritty. If you lust after every shapely woman that walks across your path, then you need to go and memorize Galatians chapter five or Ephesians chapter two. You need to memorize that scripture. And every time a beautiful shapely woman walks by your path, you stop and consciously go, And the next time a beautiful, shapely woman walks across your path, you go. And before you know it, the scripture becomes all of a sudden your grid. And you don't see beautiful women as objects anymore. You see them as the daughters of God. 
because the scripture has now internalized and now it's being exteriorized, it's being contextualized in your, your issue. That's how it works. Now, if you think it works any other way, I don't know what else to tell you. <laughs> this is how it works. It is God's word incarnate in a sacred man, captured in a sacred text, contextualized in your stuff, in every niche, in every corner of your existence. As you establish a kingdom outpost in your corner, your patch of the world, that's how it works. Well, that's all I have to say. Why don't we have the band come up? And I'm going to pray with you. And as we pray, prayer is a good time for you to make some commitments to God. It's a good time for you to just kind of build an altar and just solidify this thing. And go ahead and close your eyes. For all you who are believers, I'm going to ask you to just pray something like this. In your own words, whatever. God, help me to be a good student of your word. Help me to know it. Give me the motivation. Help me to understand it the way you intended it to be understood. Spirit, I pray that you would enlighten me. And I pray that you would help me to find those areas in my life where I can contextualize your word, where I can live it out and address the issue that's in front of me. I pray that you would help me with that, God. And I make this commitment right now that I am going to be a living letter, a living epistle with spirit competence. Not just with letter competence, but spiritual competence. Living my life with your word. Now, if you're an unbeliever and you're here today and you say, man, this all just sounds like Greek to me, good. But maybe there's something inside of you where you say, I want to know the author of this book. I want to know him. And I'm ready. Will you pray something like this with me? God, I confess my sins. I'm a dirty, rotten sinner, just like every single other person in this room. And I need your forgiveness and cleansing of sin just like all of them do. And I no longer believe the heresy that I'm good enough for you. But I believe that Jesus died for my sins. He rose on the third day and gave himself for me. And I confess him as my Savior and Lord. And I am your child and your son. Open your word to me. Open your truth to me and help me to see it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, man, we're going to worship. We're going to worship one last way. We're going to give, sing and give. Love to worship that way and close the service that way. So the ushers come on forward. And I want to ask you to uh, give generously. And I'll be back up and close it out. All right. Thanks, man, for letting me use your guitar for that. I didn't break it. I promise I'm scratching. Hey, listen, before you leave, if you prayed that prayer, we have these uh, New Believer packets on the back. Please take one. It'll help you answer some immediate questions and then come down here and tell somebody about it. Also, if you need prayer with anything, we're going to have a prayer team down at the front, and they want to pray with you, any issues in life that you have. And the last thing, uh, Pastor Kurt will be back next week, and we're starting our Christmas series next week. So pray for him. Pray for safe travel. And uh, God bless you. Remember this. Don't starve the dog. (laughs) This week. Have a great week.